the end, I broke both arms, broke my ulna in one, my radius in the other. I fractured C1 and T1 in my neck and my back. I broke like three ribs, fractured my pelvis in four spots. Um, had some open wounds because I had an ice axe that like went through my calf. Episode 363, professional rock climber and paragliding hobbyist Matt Segal joins us. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville. Hey friends, Kurt here. Thank you again for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast today. I've got a cool guy with us today, Matt Siegel. Matt is the founder of Alpine Start Foods, which is, uh, they have several products, let him talk about that, but coffee, think coffee, great coffee, and not only coffee, but coffee that is made for the outdoors and adventure sports, but we'll get back to that. We're talking today about trad climbing, and Matt's biggest claim to fame is that he's a professional climber, been sponsored with North Face for 10 years, and he's been all over the world, not just doing climbing, but setting new 514 routes, Matt is the guy. So I'm excited to talk about not just climbing, but kind of the elite side of trad climbing. Matt, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, man, it's our pleasure. I uh, I want to get the backstory. You mentioned just now before we hit record that you grew up in Florida. So I was kind of laughing because you don't climb outside in Florida unless you're climbing a tree, right? That's very true. So yeah, I grew up in Florida <laughs> And uh, my family uh, had a place in North Carolina. So I went to camp in North Carolina in the summer times and uh, kind of first tried climbing in, in North Carolina when I was really young. And when I was about 13, I, I came home to Miami and there's climbing gym uh, had opened. So I started going to the climbing gym and basically um, kind of from that first moment that I, I stepped in the climbing gym, I was pretty hooked and uh, you know, spent like most of my time at the climbing gym and obviously, you know, growing up in Miami and only climbing in the gym, I, I didn't get the opportunity to climb outside a ton. Um, so I kind of excelled at indoor climbing and indoor climbing competitions for, you know, the first five to eight years of my climbing life. Um, but eventually, you know, uh, those competitions kind of brought me all over the United States and eventually all over the world. And, uh, every time I'd go on a, 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 a trip for a competition, I'd, you know, sneak in a couple of days climbing outside and, and truly, uh, fell in love with just rock climbing. I want to get back to the transition from the gym to climbing outside. Cause I think that that's really interesting to me anyway, hopefully the listeners want to hear more about that. But I also wanted to, to ask you trad climbing stands for traditional climbing, but for the listeners who don't know what that means, What's the difference? I mean, what made something traditional climbing? The, <laughs> that's an interesting subject, um, just because there's many different opinions on that. But typically, like the general description of traditional climbing is when you're placing your own gear as protection. So uh, sport climbing would be when there's um, bolts that uh, somebody went in before you and placed the bolts um, and you would just clip protection to the bolts so traditional climbing is when you basically place your own protection and you know obviously these days we have nuts and hexes and and cams and 
all that kind of stuff that were used for, for protection. But it back in the old days, people are hammering pitons into rock and stuff like that. Would that, like that old piton hammering stuff be trad climbing or is that too old? Yeah, I mean, you know, nowadays people don't typically do that sort of like hammer pitons in as much right. as they used to um, just because the modern kind of gear is so good. Um, but that's kind of where I was getting with, um, you know, traditional climbing. There's there's certain routes that that uh, are out there, Bakarian being one of them that, you know, I haven't had the opportunity to climb yet, but it's a it's a route that is protected by bolts, but it could hardly be called a sport climb. Uh, because of how spaced the bolts are and how it was established. And it's much more of an adventure um, than a sport climb or, but you're not placing your own gear. So it's this gray area of, of kind of adventure climbing. Yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons I asked because I've asked that question before and you kind of get slightly different answers, you know, because I think there's kind of a fuzzy gray area in there. Right. Yeah, there's definitely a fuzzy gray area in there. And, you know, I've, I've climbed, you know, a fair bit of routes, too, that are like are mixed. So there might be one bolt on it, um, but it's mostly gear or it might be mostly bolts, but a couple pieces of gear. It's kind of that gray area of uh, what is it? Yeah, right. And a, a, a friend of mine kind of was joking around because during we're kind of jumping around here but later on when i was began establishing some hard traditional climbs i established them in a way where you know sometimes i would work the the moves before i would lead them on top rope and figure out where all the gear was and oftentimes they were dangerous so you know that's why there was this rehearsing going on and some people were like that's not trad climbing trad climbing has to be going from the ground up they're just like you're being a, a gear protected sport climber, which is, <laughs> is kind of funny and, and, and valid in some ways. I think, uh, you know, trad climbing, when you say trad climbing, it uh, implies a, a sense of adventure, um, which is uh, different from sport climbing in some ways. So, so that's kind of how I like to view it is, uh, yeah, that sense of adventure, that sense of climbing into the unknown. Interesting. That's a neat distinction. So back to the gym, uh, that most of that's going to be sport climbing, but there are people that are, that are at least clipping into stuff on their way up. Would you call any of that trad if you're in the gym? No, in the gym is, is just gym climbing and sport climbing. I mean, nowadays we're, you know, we're, we're seeing so many climbing gyms pop up around the, the world, really, especially in the United States. You know, I think you're, you're kind of getting a whole other set of climbing and that's indoor climbing. Um, which is great. It's a, you know, it's a, it's kind of always been a, a really good training tool for me, but you know, it's also filling a void in the fitness world for some people that just don't want to go to a regular gym and they go to the climbing gym and, and they'll never, they might not ever climb outside. Um, and that's fine and that's great. And they go to the gym and enjoy themselves. So, uh, it's almost like something totally different. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we had Chris Warner on the show talking about K2. We had him on once before talking about other climbs, but he's the owner of Earth Treks climbing gyms across mm-hmm. the United States. And, and I mentioned that for the listeners, if you want to hear more about climbing in the gym and how that can uh, like replace your traditional gym and it, it's a lot more fun. That's, that's one hint, but go back and listen to those episodes because they're really, really good and, and pretty exhaustive about, you know, sport climbing in the gym. So, but I want to hear about the transition, Matt, when you started going outside from the gym, 
then I know that things had to be completely different. Was it a whole new world for you or did it feel fairly natural? Yeah, for me, it was definitely a whole new world. Uh, you know, I was used to climbing a super high level in the gym and then would go climbing outside and get shut down like two number grades below that. Um, and that was just the, you know, that was just the, that was just the situation. You know, I, I'd go compete at a climbing competition and would do really well, would maybe win. And the people that got like, that I beat would be climbing so much harder than me on rock. And, uh, it just took a lot of humbleness and a lot of kind of patience to, to start climbing outside and, uh, kind of accept that I wasn't going to excel at it right away. And I probably didn't really excel at climbing outside until like I graduated high school and left Miami. Um, because it's hard to really get good at something when you just do it on like the weekends, you know, or not even the weekends, just like a couple times a year. So when I graduated high school, I went to Europe for a couple months and competed in world cups and then moved straight here to Colorado, uh, and started kind of focusing more on bouldering and sport climbing for the first couple of years that I was here. And so I'm sure that El Dorado Canyon's a big one for you. Yes. That wasn't until a little bit later. So basically I moved to Colorado in 2002 and for the first couple of years, I was like pretty devoted to bouldering and sport climbing. So I'd spend a lot of time up in Rocky Mountain National Park and a little bit more time in Boulder Canyon, um, sport climbing, uh, and bouldering. And then eventually I kind of, cause I was still really focusing on the competitions, when you're doing competitions, you have to folk, you have to climb inside a lot and it doesn't really, um, kind of allow you the freedom to, to climb outside a ton. Um, there's a lot of training involved and, and honestly, it's just climbing inside is it's has its own like repertoire of movement and stuff like that. So you need to be doing that more. And, um, I was focusing on that and basically I think it was in 2005, I had a really good competition year. Uh, I won ABS nationals that year, but was kind of just not really satisfied with doing the comps. It was getting really bored of it. Uh, And uh, one of my friends from the competitions introduced me to um, Eric Takaria, who had just moved to Colorado at the time. And and he um, was one of the more influential traditional climbers um, in kind of the front range, as well as uh, around the Moab area. And basically from there, he kind of, I started track climbing with him a ton and I guess he kind of took me under his wing and all of a sudden with the single pitch traditional climbing, it was able to kind of, it was new and it was exciting. If that makes sense. It was, uh, like the competitions were super physical and mental because, you know, you're put on the spot and it's like, uh, you're, yeah, time to perform. That's how I felt about traditional climbing is it really pushed me mentally and physically. Nice. Well, you know, in a gym, you can see the holds because they're bolted to a wall and they're color coded. So you know what's on route and what's off route. And they're all graded, you know, based on whoever's setting the routes, it, you know, that person's opinion on what the grading's supposed to be. You go outside, the holds are, are invisible. You know, I mean, you have to learn to read the rock right? Totally. Yeah. And the lighting changes that too. And, uh, what was that like? Um, you know, that was definitely a a challenge I I feel like, you know, kind of miss skipping around here a little bit, but you know, when I did 
those early years of, of competition climbing when I was in Colorado, I was climbing outside a fair bit. So I was getting better at climbing outside um, before I started trad climbing, um, focusing on trad climbing. Like I went through and, and climbed a bunch of really hard boulder problems and really hard sport climbs um, before I'd started really focusing on trad climbing. So I feel like I had that transition down. Um, but what was a little bit harder was kind of the, the danger element to traditional climbing and the, the element of like patience of taking your time to place your own gear and, um, kind of risk management. Yeah, definitely. That's different. <laughs> no doubt about yeah. it. Wow. Well, let's, uh, let's rewind just a little bit. I mean, you've put your heart and soul into climbing, you know, it's been your life. If someone's never climbed before and they're like, well, dude, why should I do that? What would you tell them? Uh, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it's, you know, I, I, uh, I guess a little before I answer that, like I've, you know, been spending a lot of time over the last couple of years doing other activities besides climbing, like skiing and paragliding, but climbing has always offered to me, um, this ability to push myself mentally and physically at the same time that it's a lot of these activities you don't, you can't do. Um, and I find it to be a, a super contemplative activity as well, because there's a lot of time. Um, so it's not just like, a, it's not like skiing where everything happens pretty fast, like things happen kind of slow and climbing. Um, so I think it's a really good balance of a having time to enjoy yourself uh, in these beautiful places uh, outdoors and, you know, be kind of being able to push yourself mentally and physically. Mm, yeah, you know, I've talked to a lot of climbers and people from all adventure sports. It doesn't have to be climbing, but they all talk about, you know, when you're in the groove, when you're in the moment, when you're present in the now, and they talk about how climbing helps them to get there and how important it is to to be successful, to be in that frame of mind. Is that a big deal with you? Is that part of your modus operandi, so to speak? Oh, totally. I mean, I think... uh I think with climbing, it's, you know, it's, it's definitely like you have super, you have these moments where everything clicks and everything comes together, which is kind of unlike any other activity I've ever experienced. Do you get that same sort of a feeling, um, in maybe in a slightly different way, but out of skiing or paragliding? Um, I would say skiing more so than paragliding but I'm not a good enough skier to experience that yet (laughs) (laughs) is the truth. I grew up in Florida. Um, Paragliding is its own sense of adventure um, because you're, it's not physical at all. Like you're basically sitting down. We all joke. It's like the most badass you could be sitting down. (laughs) Um, And I mean, yeah, you're, you're literally kind of lying down Uh, and but skiing is a little bit similar, more similar because there is a physical component to it. It is physically challenging, um, as well as mentally challenging. Um, but again, uh, I am not, uh, you know, I don't have nearly as much time skiing as I do climbing. So I feel like I recently was in California and I had like a couple turns that I was like, Whoa, okay. That's that, that was different. You know, (laughs) I was in some different, you know, everything was perfect. I was in kind of at squaw in bounds even and the snow was like just dumped like three feet and it was you know it was like one of those super dreamy days and i was like okay like that's i could we're we're going somewhere that's (laughs) Um, fun but literally you know that's like that's like that was like one 30 second instance you know um 
So I don't, uh, I could see for me, I could see skiing getting to a point like that, but for, with climbing, it's, you know, uh, happens way more often. Right. Well, it's fun too to, I mean, skiing is fairly new to you, right? And it's been a long time since climbing was new to you. Is it fun to do something new? And yeah, I mean, I think that's why, uh, I've kind of, it's why I first really dove into paragliding and, um, I got into a, a paragliding accident, uh, about eight months ago, which we could get into, but it happened with paragliding where I was like really into it. And it's kind of happening with skiing kind of happened with skiing both before, um, both of them actually around the same time skiing and paragliding. And I think that is just because, uh, you know, I had spent, like I've been climbing for almost 20 years and, you know, it's, uh, even though it's still by one true love, I like to say it's, you know, it's a little, it gets a little stale sometimes and it's good to kind of mix it up with new types of adventure. Um, and for me, it's, you know, that's kind of the older I've gotten, the more it's been about like going on adventures and they're all, all three of those activities are kind of, um, tools for spending time in the mountains. And, uh, I think the older I get, the more I realize that, uh, the importance isn't necessarily on, uh, any of those three activities, but it's more of like, spending time in the mountains. And I think it's like it, in the future, it'd be cool to be at a competent level with all these activities where you're like, okay, like today's a day for flying. I'm going to go flying. Today's a day for skiing. I'm going to go skiing. And, and uh, it's not, you know, not allowing the, the conditions of the mountains to dictate your time in the mountains. Right. Yeah. That's cool. You know, I've talked to a lot of uh, people who, they like to combine sports. For instance, they'll whitewater kayak one day and ski the next, which means you're going to kayak in the cold, but it's fun to do that. I'm actually doing that in a month. Right on. <laughs> uh, I am, uh, we're not kayaking. We'll be rafting, but, um, we're floating the Tatanshini river in Alaska and, uh, going to go skiing, ski mountaineering off of the Tatanshini. Awesome. <laughs> that's going to be fun. So I assume that's with AT gear, right? Have you done ski mountaineering before? Uh, yeah, I've done a bunch of touring, ski touring before a little bit of ski mountaineering, but you know, that's definitely a new thing for me. (laughs) So nice. Yeah. As I'm sure you know, from listening to the adventure sports podcast, some of the safest and best snow conditions for backcountry skiing of the whole year happen in the springtime. And Bentgate has the gear you need. Come check out the latest in Alpine Touring, Telemark, NTN, and Splitboarding gear. They have brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammoth, Solomon, Vole, Neversummer, Jones, and BCA. And you do need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear. They have beacons, airbags, shovels, and probes, and they're ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. They also rent out gear, so you can get your skis and your boots there, as well as your avalanche safety equipment. What's more, they also have free demo ski days at local resorts, so you can try out the latest gear. Now, how much fun does that sound? So swing by Bentgate in Golden, Colorado, or go to bentgate.com to find your new gear, as well as to get updates on all of their events.
Well, I tell you what, you're the perfect example of someone who understands that it's really about getting out there. It's not so much what you're doing as it is that you're doing something, you know? Totally. Yeah. And uh, I love that. And I like your perspective about, you know, my, my old my old first love is, you know, but I do this new stuff too. And I, I think that's cool. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit. I'm trying to decide whether we should go to your paragliding accident because that was a nice teaser. I want to hear that. But I wanted to hear more about uh, some of your climbing escapades. You've done some amazing stuff out there. Let's get the paragliding one out of the way. We'll come back. I want to hear about these 514 routes. But what happened? <laughs> you, you got us, you got us uh, yeah, ready to hear so, the story. So, so uh, I guess in... This was July, July 16th, actually. Um, I was actually in the middle of training to go um, on an expedition to Nepal. I was supposed to go in October um, to try to climb and fly Manaslu, uh, which is the 8,000-meter peak in uh, Nepal. And, you know, our objective was to basically try to climb the mountain um, and then flyer paragliders just below the summit. So I was doing mm. a lot of uh, kind of climbing and flying um, as preparation, as well as doing a lot of training, a lot of cardio training, um, and kind of just general alpine climbing training during that time. And basically was uh, on a little road trip kind of from Wyoming to California and had summited Mount Tom, um, which is just outside of Bishop. And was with a crew of people, about six of us, I think. Um, mm. And four people basically launched successfully. Um, and uh, there were two of us left up there. And, and I was going to launch. And basically a really strong cycle of wind came through and picked me up. Um, and I didn't have time to gain control of my wing. Uh, and it kind of spun me around and slammed me uh, into the talus field. Oh. Uh, so that was, uh, at about nine 30 in the morning and I was lying there. Fortunately, somebody was there called a rescue. Um, they were able to bring land. They were able to drop somebody off, but they weren't able to pick me up for another eight hours. Um, so I kind of laid there for eight hours, uh, without any pain meds. Uh, yeah, it was pretty rugged. In the end, I broke both arms, broke my ulna in one, my radius in the other. I fractured C1 and T1 in my neck and my back. I broke like three ribs, fractured my pelvis in four spots, um, had some open wounds because I had an ice axe that like went through my calf (laughs) and I, I generally got like pretty screwed up. (laughs) <laughs> and you were uh, worked that is horrible i was worked and, and they, they flew me to they flew me to bishop hospital and they like took a look at me and was like yeah you need to go to reno so then i got air flighted to reno uh where i was in the icu for about four or five days and then uh went to the regular hospital for like five mm-hmm. days and Basically, from the beginning, they're like, okay, like you're pretty messed up, but you're going to be fine. You have to wear a neck brace. They did surgery on my arms. Uh, the worst of all the breaks were my arms. Um, so everything else was kind of like minor fractures. So I didn't need casts or surgery on anything besides both arms, which as a climber, 
that was pretty uh pretty heinous to yeah. have both arms broken and basically for the next month after that uh next about six weeks i could kind of barely walk but i could walk a little bit uh, and i couldn't really lift up anything more than a pound Ugh. so a cup of coffee so uh i was in a pretty dark place had um yeah to say the least had some great friends and family take care of me which is kind of crucial man so I'm glad that you shared that story. It leads me to another question, and that is, you're just telling us about all these adventure sports that you're continuing to do, and after an accident like that, I think some people might say, I'm going to hang it up. Yeah, you know, interestingly enough, I, I haven't gotten back on my paraglider yet. Um, I was planning to this this spring, um, and I kind of, my whole thing with it was, uh it all started with climbing for me and I kind of wanted to allow myself to get into climbing shape, right. um, get back to climbing 514 actually is what it was before I started flying my paraglider again. And, uh, I kind of got sidetracked with skiing this winter. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I kind of basically just, you know, did a trip to Spain, climbed a couple 513s earlier in the winter and it was awesome. And I just, I, uh, I, I, I didn't, I haven't spent the time focusing on, on climbing, um, that I would need to, to be able to get back to climbing for 14 because of all the skiing. So I'm just kind of taking it one step at a time here. But, uh, yeah, I, I think my level of, I definitely feel like a little bit more, I don't know if I feel a little bit more timid. I think time will tell to be honest, cause I'm definitely timid on my skis, but that's also just because I'm kind of just learning how to do a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's a newer sport. Skiing so new that I'm not like, but I'm probably maybe maybe more timid with it than I would be if I hadn't like gotten into a really bad accident. Well, sometimes it takes something like that not to stop us, but to remind us to manage our risk. Yeah, totally. And I think ultimately like my accident occurred because uh, I was just spreading myself too thin. I was, I was trying to progress a little too quickly with paragliding. I was trying to do too much at once, you know, um, is, is the biggest thing for me. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was like training to try to climb an 8,000 meter peak without oxygen. I was like on a climbing road trip with my girlfriend at the time, like trying to climb with her, trying to do like my training and then trying to like sneak in paragliding. Um, so there was just way too much going on. Um, and that's kind of why, like, I haven't started flying again is because I, I want to be able to like, give it the, like, give it the respect that it needs. Uh, and it takes a lot of time. Uh, it's a flying sport, obviously. So it's a lot of currency. Yeah. So for me, I'm like, you know what? Like, let's ski right now. It's wintertime where you're just focused on skiing. Nice. Yeah. Well, and that makes it more manageable too, but welcome back. I'm glad that you continued to get out there and do stuff. And in an accident like that, I, another question, you know, Several episodes back now, I did a show on how dangerous are adventure sports, and I looked up statistics, and what was cool about it is that you can manage risk with any sport, right? And it was it was interesting to find out that adventure sports are generally less risky than driving a car, less risky than a lot of things that we do every day, if you're trained and you know what, you know, you, you don't take unnecessary risks, but... All of that said, um, skiing, trad climbing, paragliding, which one do you think is the riskiest? Hmm. 
I'm not sure. I, I think, yeah, I don't really know. I think, uh, I think, I mean, even though I was almost, uh, you know, almost killed paragliding, I, a part of me feels like skiing might be the most dangerous, but, uh, I'm not. do you think of it in terms of danger or do you think of it in terms of risk management and fun uh i think of it in terms of risk management and fun and i think skiing there's you know elements of backcountry skiing and snowpack and stuff that i'm still just learning uh that are there's a lot that can go wrong you know a lot yeah. But even the track climbing, you know, like with that, with all of it, there's, there's just lots of variables. So, and when you're not an expert and you're kind of a beginner, you know, uh, at something, even if you're like a intermediate or advanced or, you, you know, like you're somebody like me who has like a high tolerance for risk and, uh, is really good at risk management. So to say, you, you still don't know like all the other, uh, knowledge that experts have, you right. know? Um, so I think, uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Ski, I mean, I think skiing's the most scary to me. Maybe that's a, a different and to answer the question a little bit differently. <laughs> well, th- what's funny about it is of all the sports that I reviewed, skiing was the most dangerous except for base jumping, speed suiting. Yeah. And which it, makes it, sense. It, yeah. It, yeah. Which was nuts. The, and they were all relatively safe. I have to say it. I don't like to use the word safe because it's all about risk management, but compared to driving a car, you know, they were, they were safe, but speed suiting is not, it's dangerous. That is, yeah, that is a dangerous, dangerous. And that's what I, you know, <laughs> ultimately like early on, I really wanted to base jump and that's why I got into paragliding. Cause I was like, ah, oh, that just seems that's too dangerous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it may be a good call. I mean, some people would say, no, it's worth it. I love it. You know, and I, I can't criticize them for that, but it's, I found it really interesting that skiing has gained so much popularity. There's such a, a good chunk of the population that knows skiing. Right. And we probably think of it. Yeah. There's some risk involved, but we probably think of it as a fairly safe sport because so many people are doing it and we've done it so much, you know, but the reality is, of all the sports you listed, I'm sure it's the most dangerous. Yeah, I mean, totally. Like, I was just in uh, in Squaw Valley, and they had, like, an inbounds, you know, avalanche. And that's, like, that happened the same day in, in Mammoth, too. You know, these are, wow. like, <laughs> these are areas that, you know, are, like, some of the best gears in the in the in the country in the world you know and and it's not it's not their fault by any means they do you know so much avalanche stain like work and and, and whatnot um but snow is unpredictable you yeah know? Um, absolutely and that uh that's uh that's definitely one of those things that you're like okay like yeah well let's go back to this 514 business we got to talk about that some more sure what do you want to know? <laughs> well, first question, I, I'm going to do two things. The first one is I want to talk about what a 514 means. But the second thing is I would like for you to tell us a story of setting up a 514 for the first time. The project, right, of trad climbing. Okay. And yeah. I would love to hear that in-depth story from your perspective. But first, uh, for a long time, people said that 514 didn't even exist. It wasn't possible, Right. But now they do exist. You, you've established routes like that, and, and the climbing community says, yeah. yeah. I mean, now there's 515. Oh, I know, I know. It's craziness. <laughs> uh, I mean, essentially what makes a 514 or, uh, you know, a route be progressively harder and harder is like a couple things. One is 
is uh, how difficult the moves are, which kind of equates to how small the holds are. Um, so oftentimes you're just would be holding on with just your fingertips per se. They're not like full hand grips. Um, and then the other one would be like how sustained or how long it is. Um, but you know, you could have really short 514s too. That just means the moves are really difficult and the small holds are really small. When did you do your first 514? I, ooh, I don't know. <laughs> a long time ago. Um, sport climbing for sure. A long time ago. My first trad climb of a 514 was probably in 2006 or seven. Okay. I think, yeah, it was a route called the iron monkey. Um, it was, uh, it's in El Dorado Canyon. It was an old aid climb, an old project that people had been trying to free climb for a really long time. Uh, I think the, the aid name was Lycra clad donkey, uh, which I thought was kind of silly. So I renamed <laughs> it, which eventually I, I kind of got a little, some people weren't too happy about that. It's kind of a, a different kind of ethic of like, Oh, do you have the right to rename aid lines or not? Um, that's a whole other subject of naming routes. Um, but this route was in a, in El Dorado Canyon. It's at an area called the Kloof Alcove. Um, it's kind of like a little wall that I ended up spending a lot of time at and establishing a couple routes, uh, on this wall. But, um, I'd gone up before to repeat this route called Superfly that was established by Skip Garin. Um, I believe in the sometime, maybe in the early, uh, I'm not sure exactly when it was established but it hadn't seen a repeat for like 10 or 15 years wow. um, so it was probably established in the 90s at some point um and it was only 12 plus but i went up and repeated this route uh and kind of that kind of put me on like the local map so to say of of trad climbing um i was still in college and it was definitely one of the harder kind of scarier um trad climbs in in eldo um and saw this thing called the iron saw this thing to the left of it, the space. Um, and it was, it's really short and difficult. Um, uh, so it's not really long and sustained. It's like more like a boulder problem. And at the time I was spending a lot of time bouldering. So I had like a lot of fitness for that, but tried it a little bit and, uh, felt like it was really hard and couldn't really do it. And didn't really feel like I knew what I was doing and ended, uh, kind of going around, and going to Eldo and kind of repeating some other lines, uh, other 513s and 512s and kind of like building a basis of trad climbing. Um, so when, and I was doing a lot of this with Eric Takaria, who was kind of my climbing mentor at the time. And um, he kind of showed me the way a little bit of like what to kind of what to do, like how to climb in Eldo. Eldo is like its own little beast of a climbing area uh, and eventually kind of went back um, to the iron monkey and figured out exactly how to do it and how to place the gear. And, uh, funny enough, the first day that I was like going to really try to send it, I was like, called up my friend, Peter Mortimer from sender films. Uh, and he was, he was, uh, he's like, he was like asking me about it cause he had heard about it and was like, Hey, uh, you should come out and film. And the first day Peter came out was the day that I did it. Nice. <laughs> That's cool. So we got it on film then. He got it on film. It's in, uh, I think, one of his older films called First Descent. Yeah. So when you finally conquered this project, um, I mean, you worked hard to get to the point where you could, and you just sorted out. It, a lot of this is is planning. 
right? It, it's yeah. figuring out the right way to go about something and then being able to have the skill and the strength to pull it off. But when you finally got to the top of that, what did it feel like? <laughs> I was pretty, it was like one of those, definitely one of those, like didn't quite believe, believe it situations. Um, but yeah, I was obviously super excited and it was cool to have nice. kind of the, you know, like the film crew there and they were filming and kind of have that moment. Um, and you know, it, it's, uh, still to this date, probably one of the, one of the cooler first ascents I've ever done and hasn't really been repeated too often. I think it's only seen one true ascent, uh, repeat ascent by Ethan Pringle. And I think somebody, one other person did it with pre-place gear. Well, you've done some 514s all over the place and put up these new trad routes. Name a few others for us. Um, yeah, there's a, a lot of a lot of stuff in Colorado. I did this thing called the Orangutan Overhang, which is that was the it's an old aid line called the Orangutan, um, and that's an Independence Pass. Um, that's like another really cool. Somebody just called me up and was like, "Hey, you should come check this thing out and and try it." Um, and eventually did that. And it was super fun, kind of really love that area of Colorado, uh, independence pass. It's just, it's super beautiful right there by Aspen. Um, but I think one of the more wilder kind of first descent traditional climbs I've ever done was, uh, this thing called air China. And I put it up in, it's actually in China in this place called Liming. And I don't think it, uh, it, got the 514 mark but we just i just called it 13 plus because it was probably in that 13 kind of d cd range um and there was a bolt on it i did place a bolt on it but uh it was a kind of hard decision to place the bolt kind of a hard decision i don't know but basically i was like trying this route a ton and it's this really soft sandstone and right before the crux you place a bunch of cams, uh, small camps, but pretty good placements. They're like, um, purple TCU size pieces. If you're familiar with those camps. So they're, they're some of the smaller camps on the market, but typically they're, they're pretty solid. But, uh, I was worried about this cluster of gear of about three pieces. Uh, and I was climbing with my buddy, Will Stanhope at the time and was like, Hey, will, will you just go up there and check these, this gear out and yank on it and see if it's good. And he was like, yeah, it looks good to me. And I was like, are you sure? And had the photographer that was with us, John Dickey, go up there and be like, yank on him. And he was like, yeah, it looks sweet to me. Um, and uh, eventually, like, I decided to go for it from the ground and placed this cluster of three pieces of gear and went for it. And you kind of leave the crack and start slapping this arete and uh, fell uh, ripped all of those three pieces of gear. Oh. Oh, no. uh, my foot clipped the arete and I flipped upside down and my head landed about eight feet from the ground, <laughs> like oh. upside down. Uh, so I decided to go back and put a bolt in basically. <laughs> yeah. I think that that, you know, there's some wisdom in that. I was just getting ready to ask if you've ever pulled much of your protection like that. And I'm sure that's not the only time, but that's scary, dude. Yeah, definitely not the only time, but that was the only time that uh, I really wasn't expecting it. Like I've placed gear and had it rip, but you kind of know that there's a chance. But that was one of those situations that I was like, oh, this gear's good. You know, like, you know, all my friends went up and looked at it and thought it was fine. And yeah. Yikes. So what do you think the risk factor is when you're trad climbing of protection coming loose from the rock when you set it? I mean, how common is that? Well, 
I mean, it shouldn't be that common at all. You know, I think uh, that's just something that the, the higher levels of climbing you get, the more of the possibilities of it. Um, but, you know, it, 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 the biggest thing is rock quality. Obviously, the first thing is you want to check the rock quality for to make sure there's good um the rock's not going to break, which is what happened to me in China. And then, you know, you just need to take the time and really learn how to place gear because if you're placing gear in good rock, um, you know, it shouldn't pull. Mm. You know, I have to confess, I'm a super novice climber. I've climbed a lot of top roping over the years, but nothing even close. I mean, I, my best climb is probably what you were doing, you know, three months into your climbing career, right? <laughs> yeah. But that said, I had a 50-pound rock come off the wall with me when I was free soloing once. And, oh, yikes. And I went down, and but the good news is I had water under me. And so I threw the rock so it wouldn't crush me at the bottom, but got away with it. But that's the kind of stuff that's scary to me. It's like the unexpected. You know what I mean? Totally, yeah. Wild stuff. Well, yeah. so you have this adventure-focused lifestyle and I, so many people want to have that. And everyone's like, well, I don't know how to earn the money I need to earn. I don't know how to to get the time I need to do the things like that. But you've managed it. And part of that is starting this coffee company. Part of that is being sponsored. Let's, uh, let's, so we'll come back to Alpine Start Foods. I want to talk about how you got into that and what that's doing for you. But I also want to hear about how you got sponsored and what that did for you. Yeah, I mean, for me that kind of um, basically graduated college in 2007 and put, put it all, put life on a credit card. <laughs> um, and uh, up until that point, I, you know, had established some, some hard drive climbs. I'd built a name for myself in the competition climbing world. I had some big sponsors at the time, um, but not fully supporting sponsors. Like I worked with La Sportiva at the time and still do. Um, but they were a big sponsor of mine throughout college and, you know, they'd give me a, a couple hundred bucks here and there type of situation, um, uh, which allowed me to continue doing all the comps and everything. And then I basically graduated, uh, and was like, you know what, I want to be a professional climber and kind of went on the road, did the classic kind of trad climber thing, went to Indian Creek, went to Yosemite, freed El Cap. Um, and, you know, in some time, somebody made an introduction with me, um, and the North face and they, um, basically, you know, I kind of owe a lot of my climbing career to those guys. Cause they, uh, not only, you know, support me financially over the years, but just give me the opportunities to, you know, go on these huge expeditions all over the world. Um, so, you know, I've been, you know, on numerous expeditions to Nepal, numerous expeditions to China, uh, Kyrgyzstan, Patagonia. And uh, a lot of it is through, you know, um, having them and all my other sponsors uh, help out with, with the cost of those, those things. And I definitely got, you know, I feel like super privileged and super lucky to have had the opportunity um, to work with a company like that. And, and, you know, to continue to work with a company like that, it's been, it's been over 10 years. I think this is my 11th year on the North Face global team. And, and because of that, you know, I've worked with a ton of other companies um, currently, you know, currently and, and previously uh, I started working with Jetboil recently and they've been, you know, really good. And um, yeah, it's kind of like they, like all of my sponsors kind of just allow me to, um, you know, 
either go on these crazy adventures and do first ascents or, you know, be local and push myself and the sport as far as I can. That's awesome. So if someone's hearing this and they're going, oh, I'd love to be sponsored, it's not that easy. What do people have to do to get sponsored? I mean, obviously, you got to be really worth I don't class, even know right? how to answer that question anymore, <laughs> to be totally honest. Uh, and that's that's really, and, and that really is the truth. Um, I'm not just trying to avoid the question. Right. I mean, when I first, things have changed so much in the professional climbing and professional adventure um, influencer world. Um, since I got started, I mean, I got started 10 years ago, there was no Instagram and Facebook was tiny, you know, um, now, you know, huge contracts are getting signed purely for Instagram purposes and Facebook social media stuff. Um, so it's challenging, uh, to rec- to give somebody a recommendation, but I think honestly, the biggest thing is, is f- f- do what you want to do. Um, you know, and if you're, if you're good at it, uh, and I don't know if that's a really difficult thing because there is some strategy behind it, but it's also like, you kind of just got to do the adventures that you want to do for you and try to figure everything else out. Cause that's the most important thing. If you start doing things, uh, because you think sponsors are going to like it, that's when you're going to get yourself killed. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I hear you, man. I heard, a. a an account a while back of a a guy who was, I'm not going to name the company, but a guy who was sponsored, they had a stunt they wanted him to do. He went up and he says, it's not happening today, guys. And they were all torqued off and tried to force him to try anyway. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) notice I I named no names, but there's an element of risk and pressure that comes into it when there are expectations, you know? Yeah, totally. And it's a, you know, that's a personality thing of how are you going to manage that sort of risk? And I mean, and ultimately, you know, as much as I love, you know, my career as an adventure athlete and, and honestly don't really plan on uh, stopping it anytime soon, I do see that it is not, you know, it will come to an end eventually. And that's why I started Alpine Start. <laughs> yeah, right on. Spring is here and camping season is upon us. Visit our site at 180tech.com for your next camp stove. The 180 stove and smaller 180 flame are combustible fuel stoves, which are designed to burn the fuel that nature provides you at your campsite. There's no need to lug heavy and bulky fuel canisters along with you on the trail. The 180 flame and 180 stove are built in America and have no moving parts to fail you in the field. Check them out at www.180tack.com. Your purchase helps support the Adventure Sports Podcast. You've managed to figure out a way to have this adventure-focused lifestyle, and for a lot of people, that's a dream life. I'm sure there are pros and cons, right? But starting um, Alpine Start Foods is going to open up a lot of new doors for you. So what is this? Why did you found the company, and and where'd you get the inspiration? So I guess from the beginning, um, the last couple years I was focusing on climbing with my buddy will stanhope in canada we were shooting uh with the real rock tour um it came out last year it's a film called boys and the bugs but um will and i were spending numerous summers uh in canada in the bugaboos um and we had like a pretty lush campsite like we weren't 
really super weight conscious, but I kind of had a lot of time to think um, about just everything, you know, there's a lot of bad weather up there. So, um, and then, you know, we we're starting to figure out what we were going to do when we were like sleeping on the wall, like on portal ledges, most of the time we were sleeping at a base camp and we were kind of prepping to go for, you know, some long pushes on the wall. Um, and I was thinking about coffee and it was raining one day and I was like making coffee in my AeroPress and realized that we had Starbucks via with us. And, uh, they were the only, the only other kind of instant coffee company out there that was doing uh, anything that was a decent tasting uh, single serve instant coffee. Um, and it kind of dawned on me that, you know, um, they'd kind of opened the door um, for us. You know, they, uh, they were Starbucks. They were this kind of industry giant, this leader that uh, created a product that was, you know, a little bit better than the previous products out there. Um, but they had gotten so big that, you know, I didn't really like that I was purchasing Starbucks. Mm. Um, I'd always really enjoyed coffee and kind of would always like bring up coffee from Colorado, from some of my favorite roasters in Colorado, or, you know, go to a local coffee shop in Canada and buy the beans there, you know? Um, so I kind of had, I just realized that if I could figure out a way to do this, to make the product, um, I could brand it to me and my people and they would enjoy it. You know, they would like it and they would choose, choose my brand over Starbucks because, you know, Starbucks had gotten so big and they can't really relate to Starbucks um, that much. And, you know, so much about the products we buy and the, and uh, the, everything we consume is, is, is kind of relatability. Obviously it needs to start with quality and a good product, but um, you know, if there's a company out there that's, you can relate to and it tastes good, you're, you're going to go with them. So that's basically how I came up with the idea. And obviously the name Alpine start kind of seemed to fit. Uh, and from, from the, the moment I came to the idea, I had a friend back in Boulder, Alex Hannafin, um, who had kind of worked in the natural food world for a really kind of long time. Um, you know, in, in the ways that I was kind of a child prodigy in the climbing world, um, she was kind of a, a child prodigy in the, in the natural food world, um, kind of started her first business when she was 16 and kind of worked for a lot of the big uh, natural food businesses in, in Boulder from Justin's Nut Butter to uh, Boulder Brands and uh, a bunch of others. So I kind of brought the idea to her and uh, we kind of went from there um, and, and basically a uh, uh, kind of through tasting and sampling hundreds of different kinds of instant coffees. Um, we kind of settled on one uh, and settled on one basically and, uh, and started going, started making it. Yeah. Nice. Well, that, that had to be a real drag to have to taste that many different types of coffee, huh? <laughs> yeah. You'd be surprised. It, it, it was a, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of really instant coffee. Out there. <laughs> and yeah, we work with a, a partner to basically to make our product and um, it's, we're super happy with it and things have kind of grown drastically. It started just with Alex and I about two years ago. And uh, my sister actually is a, she's in LA. Um, she does our, a lot of our design work. Um, and then we hired our first real hire was, um, uh, VP of operations, uh, and he's kind of, you know, kind of taken over and, and now we have, 
somewhere around six or seven people on the payroll. We have a marketing manager and kind of a bookkeeper and some salespeople. And uh, we're just getting ready now to launch two new products that we're super excited about. Um, And, you know, for us, for me, you know, it's like I wanted to start with a black coffee just your standard instant coffee. And then, and then we wanted to do some, some different stuff. Um, we realized that the instant coffee market is pretty big and it's not just outdoor consumers that are buying these, our products for adventures and stuff. It's kind of like your everyday person who, you know, makes, goes to work and makes their French press at home, but wants that second cup at the office and isn't going to make you know, isn't going to make like another kind of coffee. They just want to go with something quick and easy. Um, and that's really why we started to launch our two new products, which is a instant coffee with a coconut creamer and a dirty chai latte. Mm, that sounds good. Did you have to go after some uh, venture capital and stuff to get this thing going or were you able to bootstrap it? Um, you know, we bootstrapped in the beginning and then we did raise some money. We did like a friends and family round, and then we partnered with some VC money out of San Francisco, um, which has been they're a great partnership for us. And yeah. So when you're starting a company these days, do you think that you really have to get that venture capital going to go? I guess to accelerate getting a product out there is that the way to do it? Um, you know, I think that's debatable. Uh, I think for us. It made sense to do that, uh, but I don't think you have to. But I think if you want to move at a certain pace, then it makes life a lot easier. You know, if that if that answers that question. Sure. I mean, for us, basically, I guess what I what I was kind of leaving out is, you know, we when we started the business, we didn't realize how big, how much potential there was um, in the market for instant coffee. So. Alex and I kind of decided that you were like, well, like there's a lot of potential here. We should actually take this seriously. Right. And um, that's why we chose to raise money. And, you know, now we're in like Whole Foods and other conventional grocery stores. Um, you know, we're national and REI and, and we wouldn't be able to have done that um, with just not raising any money. Well, congratulations and good for you. Here's the question though, as this company is growing and taking off like this, are you losing your adventure time? <laughs> I'm not actually. <laughs> and, uh, and the reason for that is that I have a really good team. Um, Alex is a kind of a great business partner and, you know, it's, I just have made it a priority, um, for me to continue to live my life as an adventurer. And, you know, there's a lot of bleed over with, you know, I'll go on adventures and shoot photos for Alpine Start and stuff like that. So, um, for me, it's a priority. So I keep it a, make sure it's a priority, but it is challenging. Mostly it's challenging at home to train for the adventures. Mm. Yeah. How can people learn more? So I know there are going to be people that want to see you climb and I, you've been filmed multiple times all over the place. So what's the best way to, uh, to watch you? Um, a lot of the sender films. I've shot a lot with sender films. Um, so you can check out some of their real rock tours and I'm in there. Um, as well as, yeah, I think that's that's probably the best. Yeah. Okay. And Alpine Start Foods, if people want to try your coffee, you mentioned that you're in some conventional stores and Whole Foods and stuff like that, but what if they can't find it? Uh, Amazon or our website, which is alpinestartfoods.com. Right on. 
And if they just want to keep track with what Matt Siegel is up to these days, do you uh, do a Facebook thing or an Instagram thing? Instagram is probably the best. Yeah. It's just Matt Siegel. Matt Siegel on Instagram. Yeah. Well, Matt, I love it, man. Your stories are inspirational to me. Just the idea that you lived the dream. You went out and you did what you love to do. And you got enough of that recognition to get the sponsorships. And then you had the dedication to make it work. And now that's uh, segued into starting a coffee company or a food company, I should say, that is now going gangbusters as well. So congratulations, man. Well done. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Psyched. Yeah, well, I appreciate you taking the time to tell us your story. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for thanks for having me. Oh, you bet. You bet. And until the next show, hey, everybody out there, make sure that you don't allow yourself to become lackadaisical. Make sure you're getting out there, doing something, chasing your dreams like Matt did. You never know what could transpire from that, you know? So get out there and have your fun. All right. On Monday's episode, we're going to have more airtime with Yvette Awayo. She's going to talk about her progression from sailplanes through propeller planes and on to hang gliding. Make sure you're around next week for that one. In the meantime, do us a favor and head on over to adventuresportspodcast.com and click that Become a Patron button. We need all your help to keep the show moving. Until then, enjoy your weekend, get out, and have some fun.